The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. What a pleasure it is to be here practicing with you all and with our friends on online. So tonight I wanted to say a few words about, I think all of us, probably many of us, have this experience that the more we practice mindfulness, the more we practice meditation. And maybe there's something that we learned the hard way, that maybe I learned the hard way, is that an orientation, an attitude, a stance of kindness is so helpful. I might even say mandatory. Because right as our meditation practice, we start to see all the little movements of the mind, which we're not so kind to ourselves, in which we might not be kind in our minds to others. And then we can just kind of get snagged and stuck and especially with the unkindnesses towards ourselves, we can, it can really, you know, grow and end up really being, so that meditation practice is so uncomfortable and maybe even uh, unhelpful. So mindfulness, I know like uh, Jack Cornfield now, he talks about mindfulness, he talks about his loving awareness as this way to emphasize kind of this the warm-hearted quality that's associated with mindfulness practice. And maybe we hear this in drama talks that we should have this maybe non-judgmental, we use this kind of language, or uh, available, allowing, accepting, or something like this to help uh, point to this attitude that's so helpful with the mindfulness practice. So today I'd like to talk a little bit about another doorway in, another doorway that can really support our meditation practice, support our mindfulness practice, and that is loving-kindness practice, metta practice. Some people have a lot of resistance, have a lot of uh, reluctance, pushback, like, oh, I do not like this practice, loving-kindness practice. It's not uncommon. I certainly did. I thought, like, okay, I don't know what that loving-kindness practice is, but it sounds sappy, sentimental, ooey-gooey, sticky. <laughs> I don't know, I just didn't even, even before I even really had done the practice, just the whole idea of it for me felt like, okay, not, not so interesting. So maybe I'll just say a few words about uh, loving kindness practice here. Is this, it's the uh, cultivation of the intention to have some warm-heartedness. And I like this language, warm-heartedness, because it's kind of vague. 
And I like it because it's the opposite of cold. I mean, kind of have an idea of what it means to be cold, you know, to give somebody the cold shoulder or to um, be, you know, off-putting that somehow to be cold is to not be welcoming. So I like this idea of warm-heartedness. Warmth or warm-heartedness kind of bringing in the heart quality, but maybe we could even just say warmth. So loving-kindness practice is not so much that we have to or it's insisted upon that we generate, manufacture, engineer, create some warm-heartedness. But it's more about intentionally creating the conditions in which that might arise. No guarantees that it's going to arise, but we create the conditions with the understanding that giving the heart and the mind, I'm making this distinction, which might even be artificial, but the understanding that the being, this psychophysical being, if we can allow it to rest, abide in, dwell in, experience some warm-heartedness, that it just becomes easier and easier to access that warm-heartedness when we need it. It becomes easier and easier for this warm-heartedness to be a support in all areas of our lives, not just loving-kindness. In fact, it's most common that the effects of metta practice first really show up in one's daily life before they might even show up in your meditation practice. You might be doing some metta practice and it might feel dry and stale and a little bit forced maybe and feel like, I don't, uh, well, I don't know why I'm doing this. But then you just notice that you start to be a little bit nicer to the other drivers on the road. You start to be a little bit nicer to the neighbor that doesn't put their garbage cans away in time or, you know, whatever it might be. Probably everybody knows this, but I'll I'll just mention that um, loving-kindness practice is kind of done systematically. Classically, it's done. There's lots of different ways you can do it, but... uh, One way is systematically starting where it's easy and then expanding out to where it's more and more difficult. And it's often not always done with repeating phrases. So don't worry, this whole talk is not going to be about loving-kindness practice. I just wanted to introduce it. and, And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of why we might have hesitation around it. And one particular place in which I think it can be really a great support for us in our regular practice. I know that um, there's some years ago there was this expression, no pain, no gain. And uh, right, we hear this for like uh, physical activities And I hadn't heard it for a while, but then I just heard it today, like no pain, no gain. And there's so many ways I think that we often bring this idea to all areas of our lives, including our meditation practice. 
And so there's a way in which we might bring this to thinking that metta, practice loving kindness, maybe it's not so useful because it doesn't seem like it's painful enough or it doesn't seem like, you know, to have this um, warm-heartedness, like what benefit can that be? When we, when you hear me say this, or it sounds a little bit ridiculous, but there might be a way in which in the back of our minds we have this little bit of a, an idea about this. So that might be one reason why people have this hesitation or reluctance around loving-kindness practice, is it might feel too sappy or sentimental or it doesn't feel like it's strenuous enough or difficult enough or something like this. But there's another reason, too. And that is because sometimes loving-kindness practice, when we start it, it might bring up a lot of difficulties from our hearts might bring up a lot of pain in a way that mindfulness practice doesn't. To be sure, mindfulness practice can also. But loving-kindness practice might get at some of the other aspects of our experience and bring up some of these difficulties. And to be sure that sometimes what it brings up is the exact opposite of loving-kindness. Another another Dharma teacher uh, tells this story of... uh, So now I can't remember if it was this Dharma teacher or if they were talking about a practitioner that shared with them. But nevertheless, the, um, the person was doing walking meditation and doing with metta practice to kind of repeating the phrases. And they found themselves saying these phrases. I hate metta. I hate metta. You know, just kind of this, you know, just these things kind of floating up, right? And uh, the opposite. And then when you realize, oh my goodness, what's happening? I've had similar things to you happening. May you be happy. And then beep, like I would say, like, you know, some... So it can be surprising. And then, of course, none of us want to think that we have hatred inside of us or ill will or something like this. So it really doesn't conform with the ways that we want to think about ourselves. So it's, it can be really uncomfortable. And Jack Cornfield has this expression that I really love. I appreciate when he talks about some of the difficulties that might come up with any kind of practice, but I'd like to say maybe specifically with metta practice, and that is the unfinished business of the heart. So whatever it is, some of those pains and difficulties that are recurring, that maybe um, are deep in some ways, they show up in so many different uh, manifest, they show up in so many different ways. Often this could be a sadness or a grief or anger, or some hatred even. And of course some of this unfinished business of the heart might even show up as some bodily pains. Maybe we don't recognize it at first, but... Or maybe just part of the difficulties are bodily pains too, you know, sitting in meditation. It's not 
the most comfortable, certainly at the beginning, in one's practice. So that's a second reason why sometimes loving-kindness practice is we can have a hesitation towards it is because we might have tried it and unknowingly just the difficulties uh, came up. The third reason, and uh, there's actually some clinical data on this where they had uh, some group of individuals doing some mindfulness practice and some individuals doing loving-kindness practice and asked them, you know, a whole bunch of questions before, during, and after, you know, these uh, being trained to do these different meditation styles. And what they learned was that at the beginning, if you were to compare uh, mindfulness practice and loving-kindness, everybody prefers mindfulness because loving-kindness feels way too complicated and you have to remember these phrases and who are you going to do it with? And you know, there was all this, maybe it just seems too busy or it just felt like too much effort. But then through, I think it was like eight weeks, after eight weeks, that had uh, switched, where after having done it for some time, everybody preferred loving-kindness practice over mindfulness practice. Partly because it felt like, you know, it was a way to be kind to themselves and they could feel some shifting happening in the way that they were viewing themselves and others. No guarantees, right, that this is going to happen, but I just kind of want to validate if there's some like this initial resistance, it just feels too complicated, I don't want to do it. So one thing I want to talk about is how is it, A, maybe how can we work with some of these difficulties that arise with a loving-kindness practice? But not only that, how might, while we're doing metta practice, doing, practicing loving-kindness, how might it be especially suited to work with certain types of difficulties that show up in our lives, that show up in our mindfulness practice. So can we, if we're doing mindfulness practice, uh, sorry, metta practice, the encouragement, of course, is if we can, can we just expand the loving kindness to include the difficulty? just in the same way that we would with mindfulness, right? We would just kind of bring whatever that difficulty might be. So, for example, if we're saying phrases, may you be happy, may you be healthy, can we also include the sadness that sometimes arises? Sometimes when we're wishing people, may you be happy, what comes to mind is, all the times we have not been happy, all the times they have not been happy. Maybe it come, may you be happy, and then we start to think, and maybe it's just for a flash, we start to think like, well, no wonder you're not happy. It's so many terrible things are happening, and then off we go, right, in this kind of a mind stream. So if we discover, oh yeah, there's some sadness, can we in some way be acknowledging the sadness, but still saying, may you be happy, may you be healthy, safe, may you live with ease. Sometimes with loving-kindness practice, there may be a real sense of boredom. 
We're saying these phrases, you know, it's the opposite of sadness, right? Which is juicy and feel like we have to work with it. And But what if there isn't anything particular happening? And instead we're just reciting phrases, having this intention of cultivating loving kindness. Can we just be bored? Be saying these phrases that feels dry sometimes? Not forcing ourselves, not tightening down and drilling in, but can we still, may, may I be happy? Maybe we feels like a little bit of suffering then and we can bring a little bit of compassion practice in for ourselves. But sometimes there can be some anxiety that arises. Just thinking about happiness and health. So can we... Just make space for that while we continue to do the phrases is one way. We might work with difficulties that are happening. In this way, we let the practice be inclusive instead of kind of insisting that things be match our preferences. We're more relaxing or softening in all the ways in which we divide our experiences between this is okay and that isn't okay. Like, may you be happy. And to notice, yeah, there's, there's sadness also. I'll talk a little bit more about what to do if there's some real sadness, but there may, if there's some twinge or some um, recognition of some grief there, can we allow our loving kindness practice to be inclusive? So then maybe we can think about our loving kindness practice be less about befriending ourselves, befriending others, and maybe more it's about just befriending each moment. And is there a way that we can meet each moment with kindness instead of trying to shove it away or having aversion or grabbing onto it so tightly, whatever it might be. So I want to um, read some words by Rosemary Traumer. She's this, uh, I think, a very beautiful poet and part of the reason why, um, there's a number of reasons why I like this poem, it's very short, is that um, she talks about blue herons. And I just love blue herons. They have this majesty about them. Those of you who don't know, they're, you know they're, they're big birds. Maybe that's what makes them seem so majestic. They can be like three or four feet tall, and their wingspans are like, you know, six feet and... And I often go walking at a place where I can see them. I I have an uncle who lives on the East Coast, and he's often, uh, he's a professional photographer, and he also likes to go for hikes and stuff. And whenever he sees a blue heron, he always, like, sends it, because, you know, it's just, they just have this majesty about them. So here's this poem by Rosemary Traumer. Nudged by hope, the heart 
rises from exhaustion. It's like the great blue heron I saw this morning flying up from a wasteland on broad gray wings with strong, slow beats. For a moment, charged with grace before did you see this heart it chose to land again bringing all its beauty to the desolate place so we can imagine that it starts here that uh, this great blue heron leaves this wasteland like this like there's nothing here it's a wasteland and going up with this kind of graceful way and then deciding to come back down. I love this idea that some ways in like loving kindness practice maybe is like this, right? This beautiful bird, she describes it as bringing all its beauty to this desolate place. There might be this wish initially to leave, like, okay, I, I don't want to be with this difficulty maybe taking a few beats and then landing again. So we keep coming back to the practice, whether it's mindfulness or loving kindness, but just this idea of keeping coming back, increasing our capacity for loving kindness. And I started talking about loving-kindness as warm-heartedness, and I was appreciating the vagueness of it, but maybe that's even too ambitious, warm-heartedness. Maybe it's helpful and supportive to think about it as not dwelling in aversion. Not dwelling in aversion. So, Maybe it's warm-heartedness. Maybe we don't even have access to that. But to just uh, orient the mind and the heart away from ill will, away from aversion, away from insisting, demanding in our minds, if not actually, that things be different. So bringing all its beauty to this desolate place in this poem... It's a way that it transforms the place so that it's no longer desolate, so that it's no longer bleak, it's no longer abandoned. But instead, we choose to stay as best we can, as best we can. Maybe we're a great blue heron and then we turn into a crow that is called crying, making sounds, and <laughs> the bird that's that is, is very different, and then maybe we are a great blue heron again, I don't know. But And to be sure, sometimes it's really skillful to drop the loving kindness and to bring mindfulness to the difficulties, but can we meet it with acceptance and kindness? Maybe this is uh, where working with difficulties while doing loving-kindness practice really helps us with this very thing, to meet difficulties, to meet 
all the ways in which we might get stuck with some warm-heartedness or not dwelling in aversion. And just having that experience of doing that can help us in, in our daily life, certainly, but also in our mindfulness practice. So probably all of you know there are these five perennial ways with practice in which our clarity gets obscured, in which there's these forces of distraction or agitation that arise, or whether it's in our mindfulness practice or in our metta practice. It's called the five hindrances, so kind of like five types of things that get in the way. I'll just mention them here. I'm not going to talk about all of them, but just so that we recognize that, oh yeah, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, doubt. So many of our things that get in the way, I'm using this language, get in the way, but that was sometimes we it's not actually in the way, it is the practice, but we feel like it's some like hindering or not not uh, supporting us. And of course, these five, it's a natural part of every human experience. They are not personal failings when they arise during meditation. But how often do we think that when they do arise, oh, I'm doing something wrong? I'm not a very good meditator. This meditation practice is not going well. Probably that person sitting next to me is doing fine, but look at me, I'm having all this aversion or I'm feeling so restless or whatever it might be. But instead of personal failings, can we just see them as part of our practice? And there can be a way in which, because these will arise during metta meditation as well as mindfulness meditation, if there's a way in which we can make it a point, oh yeah, what metta, and I see these hindrances, I feel these hindrances arise. This is such a great way to practice with hindrances, precisely because we might, if we're doing metta practice, maybe we're less likely to naturally fall into these ideas of, oh, I'm a terrible meditator. I can't meditate. I'm hopeless. It can be an opportunity for us to say, I'm a terrible meditator. And may I be happy. I am hopeless. And may I be peaceful. This is terrible. I can't do this. And may I live with ease. So just to fold it in with the phrases that we're saying... Because part of what meditation practice is, is to help us, I think all of us know this about, you know, we rewire the brain. And it's amazing, right, how much this inner critic shows up and how much this inner critic telling us that we can't do it, we shouldn't even try, or everybody else can do it, or whatever the, however it shows up or whatever words it uses for you. 
And it can be really powerful, this inner critic. It can really undermine our practice, our lives. But to work with it while we're doing metta makes it very so much easier to notice the inner critic and to counter the words, counter these phrases with, may I be happy? So that there's a way, it's like, oh, if this word comes, if this sentence comes up, oh, you're a terrible meditator. And then to say, may I be happy, kind of like takes the, the authority out from this idea, may I, be, I'm a terrible meditator. Maybe it helps soften the, the blow, so to speak, that may, it might even become familiar that we haven't even noticed. But with loving kindness practice, we can start to undo or rewire some of those neural circuits that might be such a habit that we don't even notice. A second way in which it can be really helpful and fruitful for our lives and for our meditation practice in general to be working with hindrances, to be working with difficulties while we're doing metta practice, while we're doing loving-kindness practice, is because there might be some repeated patterns that we have. Probably all of us have repeated patterns of difficulties that arise in our lives and, of course, arise in our meditation. And one way to work with some of these repeated patterns So just do a very gentle inquiry. What is asking for acceptance? What is asking for some warm-heartedness? What is asking for us to not be dwelling in aversion with regards to it? And if we have been practicing loving-kindness and have this intention to have this warmth, or to have this openness or spaciousness, that might be just be creating the conditions in which it might become clear what is asking for acceptance. And to be clear, I'm not talking about doing a very like type of archaeological dig or you know discovering exactly what it is, that thing that happened when you were eight years old and you know whatever it might be. But there's something about asking the question. It's not so much about finding the answer. It's about asking the question. What is it that's asking for acceptance? What is it that's asking for kindness? What's asking to be loved, to be seen within us? So if, we, if we're in the doing loving kindness practice, there might be a way in which the conditions are such that there might be some new insight, some new understanding that becomes available. Because these repeated patterns, they remain because there's some level of resistance, right? There's something that's not being accepted. There's something that we continually are trying to push away or not acknowledge. And so in the scheme of not trying, in the scheme of uh, practicing kindness, that might be just the conditions in which there might be some new understanding. And so this also asks, you know, that this, um, 
asking us maybe what's to be asking for acceptance is our fear, our judgments, our aversions. Not always easy to see this in ourselves. Sometimes it doesn't match the image we want to have of ourselves. But this process of gentle, warm-hearted investigation can be transformative in such a way that maybe there isn't a big shebang and everything gets resolved and we live happily ever after. But there can just be a little bit of a shift by having practice some loving kindness to be seeped in that and to ask what's what's need for acceptance there can be a little bit different understanding so maybe one last thing here that I'll talk about with working with difficulties in the context of uh, doing loving kindness practice is when there are difficulties, whether it's emotional difficulties, physical ones, or whatever ones they are, whatever they might be, there's a way in which um, our attention can shrink. And the only thing that we notice is what is difficult at that moment. We have this pain in our knee, then it just becomes all about can I move my knee now? Should I wait to move it? Or it's I shouldn't have uh, walked that extra mile this week. Or I, I thought I would be better. Maybe I should call the doctor. You know, whatever it is, there's the all of our attention tends to be about the knee, or if it's uh, this repeated patterns. I'm talking about some of these emotional ones. For example. There might be a repeated story, I'm just making this up, about the divorce of our parents and and over and over about what happened to which child or and when or, you know, something like this. And then we might have this, uh, maybe this memory or this thought that just shows up repeatedly in the context of a loving-kindness retreat where this shows up Is there a way in which we can expand the field of attention? Earlier I talked about when there's pain in the knee, it's always the knee, but now I'm talking about maybe there's this thought or this memory, so it's more a a bodily experience. So can we expand it? So what do I mean by that? This idea with the, let's say the story that happens with the divorce of the parents and there's this pain or is or there's this memory that keeps on coming up that's a that's more like a mental event a memory to expand is to say oh how does that feel in the body to bring in something a little bit more than just that difficulty how does this thought feel in the body what is this oh we might recognize, oh, there's some tightness in the chest and the diaphragm and a lump in the throat. And with that, just expanding this uh, area of awareness, already that has a little bit of a shift. So we're not completely consumed 
with this, with the, the memory. And with that little bit of shift, there's a little bit of space. Just a little bit of maybe a little more breathing room. And then we might also ask ourselves, maybe, maybe it'll be skillful, maybe not, something for you to explore for yourself if it seems like the appropriate thing to do. But we can then, with this expanding our awareness and now a little bit more space, we could ask ourselves, is it true? And of course we're going to think, well, yes, it's true. I'm thinking it, so it is true. Or we might think, well, that's kind of rude to ask, right? There's this, of course it's true feeling, but again, this just kind of dropping in this gentle, warm-hearted inquiry makes space for something else to unfold, something else to arise, something else to happen. In the context of a, when we were doing metta practice, this warm-heartedness, you know, is it true, might allow for, well, part of it's true, but maybe not the magnitude, or maybe even just the answer is, I don't know. So there may be a time in which it's not helpful to ask this question, is it true? But there might be a time in which it is supportive and is wise. And so that's all of us to find our way with this. But if we find like we're really stuck and if we're doing loving kindness practice and just find that we can't connect or we can't do the loving kindness practice, this is a a way in which we might be able to find a little bit more ease. So our difficulties are often found, you know, in the body, the pain in the knee, in the mind, memories about something that happened emotionally or energetically or something like this. But this idea that can we expand of our awareness, can we become aware of another dimension of it, of this uh, persistent visitor. We'll use that word, visitor. So beyond what's the obvious, beyond what's the most prominent way it shows up, because this release or a shift or a type of letting go only can, if we find that we're stuck, a release can only happen if we kind of are shifting our way that we are with the difficulty. What I mean by that is the way that our stance, our perspective, and so often the easiest way to do that is to, if we find it's a mental thing, to go to the body, if we find it's a bodily thing, well, to go maybe to a neutral place in the body, or maybe to hearing, but to shift a little bit our um, our awareness, what we're bringing to our attention. And then, of course, this expanding our Awareness helps us to become a little bit disidentified with whatever it is that's causing the difficulty. And that can open up space to recognizing what else is here. 
if we've been practicing some loving kindness, there might be might be some of this residual, this uh, residue, the perfume maybe of uh, some warm heartedness. Even if right then we haven't, there might have been uh, uh, easy access or easier access to that if we had just been practicing it earlier. And it might be a way in which that we can orient towards the warm-heartedness as a way to make space and disidentify with the difficulties. So tonight I talked a little bit about why there are difficulties even starting a loving-kindness practice. There's a number of different reasons why people have a hesitation, a reluctance, uh, to not even do loving-kindness practice. And then I talked about uh, some of the ways in which we can work with difficulties while we are doing loving-kindness practice and a way in which it might be um, a really fruitful place to work with loving, uh, I'm sorry, with difficulties. Of course, mindfulness practice is very skillful in a way to do that too, but there might be some ways in which in the context of loving kindness practice, to work with difficulties can be really helpful also. There's something about reminding ourselves of the goodness, the warm-heartedness that exists in everybody, ourselves and in others, that can really make a, can be transformative and can be really powerful practice as an alternative to maybe just feeling stuck or feeling like we can't find our way forward or in a way that doesn't feel like it's supporting our life or our practice. So that we can show up for our life and our practice and show up for others in a way that is supportive, helpful, uplifting, so that all of us can find more freedom, more ease, and more peace. So, thank you.